Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. You know, I love it when we hear from God. And if God's been saying to you already things that touch your life this morning, then don't lose sight of that as we go through the rest of the meeting. If you'd like someone to pray with you at the end of the meeting, we would arrange that. And I also love it when God starts to speak in a meeting and it ties in with what you're going to preach on. It just gives you a little bit of confidence that perhaps when you planned this, you did hear right after all. Those of you who are here regularly will know that, in fact, since January, we've been looking at a whole series of subjects that have come out of that that passage in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah one morning, as he did many mornings, walked into the temple. But something different happened. That morning, he met with the manifest presence of God in a way that he was unaccustomed to. And we've looked at the passion that came in his heart out of that. And then we've been moving on to look at the bit where he began to realise his need for purity. And so we've been doing a mini-series on purity. And we've looked at stealing God's glory, we've looked at idolatry. Over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at a couple of issues relating to the tongue. We've looked at gossip, and we've looked at grumbling and complaining. And this week, we're looking at the final subject in the purity issues. Now, if you were tempted last week and the week before, to think that those were subjects for women, then I want to say a couple of things to you. Okay? Firstly, you're wrong. Okay? And secondly, you can't get out of this week. Okay? Because this week isn't, is a subject that certainly hits men right between the eyes, and I say those words quite deliberately, Okay, but it isn't exclusively for them either. We're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Some of you may know it. It's quite a long narrative. And so what I'm going to do is break it down into chunks and read parts of the scripture and then comment on them. I'm starting in 2 Samuel 11 at the beginning of the chapter. And we're going to go right through 11 and into chapter 12. It says this, it's talking about David. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof 
a woman bathing. And that woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The trouble was, David was a man with time on his hands. It was the spring. The army had gone off to war. They were in the middle of this war with the Ammonites. And for some reason, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. You can imagine the picture. He had all the time in the world, and all of his best mates were away. So one afternoon, he finds himself wandering around his roof garden. And then he sees something just down below. It's a woman. Good looking one at that. In fact, you might go so far as to call her beautiful. And things just get better and better. Because as he watches, she undresses and she bathes. She's going through the ritual purification process that she has to, as a Jewish woman, go through once a month. And it's all happening right in front of his eyes. Now, who could resist watching? David certainly couldn't. He knows he shouldn't. But it's just too tempting. And she hasn't noticed him. And she's in no hurry. She lingers in the water. And so he stays there, looking, watching, just waiting till that last second when she dresses and moves away out of sight. And then the trouble is, even after she's gone, he's left with this image in his mind. This beautiful woman, naked, coming out of the water, pure. He just can't get it out of his head. It's going round and round like a video loop. Who is this woman? He makes some discreet inquiries. And one of his servants knows who he's talking about. It's Bathsheba. It's Uriah's wife. Oh, she's married. But that doesn't matter. Let's have her around. I'd love to meet her. She looks so beautiful from a distance. I'd love to see her up close. And so despite any reservations she might have, she arrives at the palace, summoned by the king. And guess what? The inevitable happens. They end up in bed together. 
and a few weeks later, she realises she's pregnant. And there's a problem. It can only be one person's baby, because her husband's away at war. It's got to be David's. What a scandal that'll cause. In our day and age, you can picture the headlines. David romps with his best mate's wife. Bath time fun for the king. I couldn't do a son. I can't get that many words to rhyme. But you can imagine the type of scandal it will cause. And that isn't what David needs at the moment. There's got to be a solution. I know. It carries on. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. What a plan. Uriah's been away at war. Bring him home for a night or two. Once he gets home, once he's there with his wife, it's not going to take long before the natural just happens. And that will just cover things up nicely. No one's going to notice a week or two out when the child is born. No one's going to question the dates. You can hear the plan hatching. But unfortunately, not everything runs like clockwork. We read on, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he didn't go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel are camping in the open field. Should I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow. I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. And so he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. It was time for plan B. Uriah was just one of those guys who took his responsibility far too seriously for his own good. He knows that all his mates are still out sleeping in the fields because they're at war. They're living at tents. And because of that, how could he face them Monday morning if he'd been at home in comfort in the arms of his wife? He just couldn't do it. So David decides to get him drunk and then send him home to his wife. That should do the trick. 
But again, Uriah shows that he is a man of some fortitude. He is still going to stick by his principles. There's going to be no conjugal enjoyment here. Not until his mates are all back home, safe and sound with him. So what on earth can David do? The clock's ticking. Time's moving on. He needs another plan. Plan C. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. If Uriah won't go home and sleep with his wife, there's now no other option. He's going to have to die. But how can he die? And yet David the king appear blameless. It's almost like the words you hear so often come out of Edmund Blackadder's mouth. I have a plan. And it's so cunning, you could brush your teeth with it. The plan's simple. Israel is at war, and Uriah is a soldier. What could appear more innocent than for him to have died in battle? Killed by the enemy. No one could blame David for that. So let's stick him right up the front when we plan the next siege. Right in the most dangerous place, the thickest part of the fighting. Because then it will only be a matter of time before he goes and gets himself killed. And so then, after a suitable period for appearances sake, David can marry Bathsheba as an act of kindness and the whole thing will be under control. Oh, the cleverness of it all. And what's better is that's exactly what happens. But there's one problem. Something that David, in all his planning, has overlooked. And that is that God has seen it all. The people might be fooled. But when you see the very thoughts of King David, who can fool God? So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, 
Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours one now and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. God sees everything we do. We can't hide from him. We can't hide from his gaze. We have no secrets from him, whether we like it or not, because God is omniscient. He knows everything. And sometimes when God sees things that he doesn't like, he chooses to act or to speak. And that is exactly what he then goes on and does here. He sends one of his prophets, Nathan, to confront David. But because David is, after all, the king, Nathan starts with the gentle approach. He starts by telling a story. You can pick this up at the start of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he'd bought. And he bought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock, or herd, to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who'd come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. It's a great story. But will the penny drop? Well, just to make sure, Nathan then gives David a fairly swift uppercut to the chin. You are the man. It's fairly blunt, isn't it? Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, 
behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before Israel and before the son. Fortunately, having heard this pronouncement, David is convicted. He repents and he cries out to God for forgiveness. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Notice that although David's life is spared, there's still a price that has to be paid for that sin. And as a result, David's child dies. David then has another son by Bathsheba. And because that child is not born out of a sinful relationship and out of the sin that David was committing in all this, God blessed him. And that child is Solomon. But the big question is, what relevance does this have to our lives today? It has a lot. Because although David was a king, and although he was living in a palace several thousand years ago, this passage shows us just how much David has in common with a lot of us today. And it's true whether you're male or female. The first point is, David was led by his eyes. We all know that men know exactly how to check out a woman. As she enters a room, we all know that our eyes go directly to the parts of her body that will tell us most about her. We look her straight in the eyes. And they remain rigidly fixed there, gazing lovingly at her throughout the length of any conversation we might have. Our eyes do not stray. We're not tempted to be influenced by physical appearance or physique. Or perhaps it's not quite that simple. Perhaps we are more influenced by other factors than we care to talk about. But do you know what? Recent research has shown that women are just as bad. Women know how to check out a man as he approaches just as quickly as men do with women. And surprisingly enough, they check out very similar features. The warning here is clear. We need to be careful about what we are looking at. Because David was led into seduction by his eyes. So whether it's in the street, whether it's at the beach, whether it's looking at the magazines in the newsagents, we need to be aware of what our eyes are taking in. 
Pornography is so much easier to obtain these days. It's on TV, it's on the internet. And it seems that almost every magazine has to have images that will draw our eyes. Women might not be so easily drawn to pornography, but the danger's still there. Why else do we have all these celebrity magazines with pictures of good-looking men in them? For David's downfall, it was a lack of self-discipline. When he saw Bathsheba undressing, he could have so easily looked away. But he didn't. There's equally a warning there for ladies. Be careful about the way you dress. Be careful about those fluttering eyelashes and that flattering talk. Because it does, after all, take two to tango, as they say. But then the second point. Where David's eyes started, he was happy to follow with his mind. The Bible teaches us that we are in a battle. And some of that battle is raging in our heads. In Galatians 5.22 it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it goes on to say, Against such things there is no law. The battle for the mind is to keep our thoughts on what is pure and holy. And that is a daily battle. And we need to be aware of it. We need to fight it and we need to win it with the help of the Holy Spirit. He was led by his eyes. He was happy to follow. But then he allowed that thought life and his emotions to rule. What escalated the situation further was the fact that his mind started to take over. What had started as an accidental glance had now become something more. I don't know, maybe David was enjoying the risk of being spotted. Maybe it was something even more than that. The start of a fantasy. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. I, Paul myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul recognised the problem. He talked about taking every thought captive. 
Maybe we enjoy sailing close to the wind. Perhaps we have an unhealthy fantasy life. Perhaps it's fueled by romantic novels or photographs. Maybe we just enjoy flirting or being flattered. But Paul's advice is clear. Take every thought captive. And then, fourthly, David acted on his feelings. This fantasy life wasn't enough for David. That look, that glance, it just wasn't enough. He had to start acting on it. So he asked who the woman was, and he tracked her down. He had her invited to the palace. It's almost like this had started to become an obsession. He had to see more of her. And in order to do so, he was prepared to risk everything. Even his reputation as king. Are you suffering from obsessions? Are there things in your life, other than God, that you have to pursue at any cost? Because if so, the Bible has a word for it. It's called idolatry. Idolatry should not have any part in our lives as Christians. And do you know what the biggest idol in our day and age probably is? It's the cult that we call celebrity. Even when David realised he was wrong, he didn't, to begin with, do the right thing. Firstly, he attempted a cover-up. Now, cover-ups might work elsewhere. People in local government often seem to think they'll work there. It usually comes out in the end. But when you are dealing with an omniscient God, they just don't achieve anything. Because he sees right through it into the heart of the situation. And so there's only one answer when you blow it with God. And that is to take responsibility for your actions and come to him and confess. Avoidance doesn't work. Cover-ups don't achieve anything. And blaming others doesn't help. We simply have to recognise our weaknesses and come to God with an open and sincere heart. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain... That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's from the ESV. The NIV uses the words, with a sincere heart. And then when that didn't work, David resorted to conspiracy to murder. David was just sinking further and further into sin. 
You know, there's an old saying my father taught me. I know a lot of people know it. It's very simple and it's very true. He said, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. When you've fallen into the pit of sin, any more sin doesn't help. It does nothing to get you out. All it does is makes the pit you're in bigger. And yet, we all suffer from a temptation to cover our sin with lies, with falsehood, and maybe more. And then I think the final insult was David tried to make his sin look like a noble deed. But God saw through it. He tried to make the whole thing look like an act of kindness. You can almost imagine him saying, look, I'll take in this poor pregnant widow, I'll care for her, and for her child, and I'll bring them up as if they were my own. If people had known the truth, how hollow those words would have sounded. And the sad thing is, throughout the whole of this, the answer was simple. And we can see in this passage... A glorious truth. It's a truth we're used to picking up and seeing in the New Testament covenant. But here it is, wonderfully displayed in the Old Testament. When we do things wrong, we need to come before God in repentance. And in the end, that is exactly what David did. Listen to the psalm he wrote after he'd been confronted by Nathan. It's Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God. And then there's a second issue. It's not something we talk about very often. But sometimes when we have adversely affected others with our sin, 
We need to do something to compensate them. There needs to be restitution. It's taught throughout the Bible. It's all over the laws in the Old Testament. But although it's an Old Testament concept, it still applies today. But today we apply it with grace rather than law. But if you've made another suffer, it's right you repay them to some extent. We shouldn't profit from our sins. And then we see finally a restoration. David finally enters back into God's blessing. He's confessed, he's repented, he's offered restitution by taking Bathsheba as his wife, and God starts to honour him by blessing them. And it finishes the story with, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Now I think to some extent, this story has something in it for all of us. We all know that there are things that catch our eyes. There are things in our thought life that we struggle with. And so I'm not this morning going to suggest that we have a public ministry time. But if something this morning has highlighted an issue and you'd like someone to pray with you, we will do that. But what I'm going to suggest is that in our midweek groups, I'd like you to ask some questions. And they're not necessarily for discussion. But I want us to almost follow in the footsteps of Wesley. Wesley, when, when he was seeing times of revival, contained what God was doing by setting up churches and small groups around the country. And they used those for accountability. They used to ask themselves some really personal questions. They used to weekly, between themselves, discuss what sins they'd been tempted with and what sins they had committed. But I just want us to ask ourselves these sort of questions. Are my eyes pure or are they in fact a gateway into me for unhelpful images? Am I in control of my thought life? Or do I run away and let fantasy and idolatry take hold of my mind? Am I struggling with temptation in any area of my life? What can I do to make my thoughts captive? Do I need help in getting this under control? Would it help if I made myself accountable to someone else in this? And what can I do to keep myself pure in this area? If anyone needs them and wants those questions, I'll leave them at the front and you can, you can come and get them. Um, otherwise I'm going to finish there. But I just think this is a real issue for anyone in our day and age. And yet we want to be different. We want to be living lives 
to the full with no impedance of the spirit flowing in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And this has all the potential to be a major blockage. So if you know you struggle with it, get it sorted. Amen? Amen. Have a good week. May God bless you. May he keep you. May the light of his face just shine from you this week. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 